Let me say two things um, before we step into our text, but uh, relate to the, to the family. If you've been around fellowship for a little while and, you, and you're just thinking about stepping in to, to, to membership, that really matters. Whether at fellowship or another church, you can't, we believe the Bible teaches you don't grow apart from that community of faith. And so we just want to make that available to you. And one of the ways you can do that is join us for community breakfast. We do it time, well, probably every other month we're doing it now, but over here in the barn next Sunday at 9.35, if you just want to drop in for breakfast, drop in. Uh, some of our staff will be there to talk with you about ways to connect and step into life uh, at fellowship. And the second thing I want to say to all of us is uh, next week we will finish, of course, this series we've been in, Four Weeks in Easter, The Walk That Changed the World, and we will step back into something we stopped about five years ago, August of 2010, we finished studying Genesis 1 through 11. Next week, we're going to pick up Genesis 12. We're going to go Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 25. Now, who knows who those chapters are about? Who are they about? They're about Abraham. Guess what one of the big themes is going to be through that whole thing? Faith. The theme of the series is trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. Because a lot of times for us, it just doesn't make sense to trust him and we'll explore Abraham's faith and indeed how his own faith grew. Over the past four weekends, we've been traveling the dusty roads of Israel with Jesus and his disciples. We've walked with them on this walk that changed the world. It began in, we're tracing Mark's gospel account, where in Mark 11, he, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem for the last time. Why the last time? Because he goes to Jerusalem in order to die. And last week, if you were here, we sat in this room and we traced those footsteps and as he neared Jerusalem, and as he got there, as he endured every act of brutality and inhumanity, we blew out a candle until the room, the shadows got darker and darker, and we were finally sitting in complete darkness. What did that feel for us? Why did we do that? That we would feel the dark reality, that the one we were hoping would save us, Hosanna, was now lying wrapped in a linen shroud, doused with a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes to cover the stench of his bloody and beaten body. He's dead. It's a fair question to ask, why did this death change the world? Well, let me answer it on two counts. Number one, we've got to remember that his death was substitutionary. Always keep in mind, Jesus' death, unlike any other, was a substitute. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin, so when he died, he died in our place. It was substitutionary. Secondly, here's the good news of the day. It was temporary. You see, because Jesus had no sin of his own, having satisfied the penalty... Death couldn't hold him, and he rose from the grave. I love it how we sing sometimes at Easter that song. He trampled over death by death. And yet the reality of Christ's death and resurrection, it changes nothing. Let's be brutally honest. It changes nothing until it changes the heart and soul of the individual. That which is a historical fact, you see, must become a personal 
experience. And so before we join this group of women, three women in the Gospel of Mark, on an early morning walk to that tomb that literally changed their world, I'd like to tell you how this walk changed mine. I grew up in a military family. And and when I say that, I know there's a bunch of military brats in the room. And for all of us who grew up in military families, the watchword was moving, we're moving, we're moving. You know, you're just always moving along in that life. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids. I've got an oldest sister, then my brother, who's 18 months older than me, then Lloyd, the baby of the family. Many of you know my mom was full-blooded Japanese. They met after the war. My mom and dad were married for over 50 years until her death back in 2010. They were great parents. It was, a, it was a wonderful home. But I must say, in my home, there was no spiritual direction. There was no biblical input or guidance for us. When I got to high school, I was just a typical teenager. Um, I'll describe it this way. I I honestly looked pretty good on the outside, but there were things going on on the inside. If I could describe it this way, I, I, as a teenager, I I lived with this deep insecurity, anxiety, and, and I know you're going, well, doesn't every teenager? Well, yeah, I guess we all, you know, all do at some level. Um, I, I could not articulate this at 18, okay, but... As an adult, it's pretty clear to me that there were three things going on in my heart as a teenager. The first one was this thought that I believed I was defective. Where did that come from? I, I just, I know myself and I thought something's wrong with me, so I'm defective. And then I had this other thought in my mind I'm deficient. In other words, I am, everyone else has it, but I'm missing something. And the third thing kind of plays out of that. Here's a thought that I, the tape I played in my mind my, most of my life, that I still, and I still struggle with, but it's this. I'm on the outside looking in. I mean, because I carried these thoughts in my own mind, you know, I, I'm, something's wrong with me, something's missing, I don't fit in. I, Everyone else has got it, I don't. They're together, but I'm on the outside. I just always lived with with that going on in me. I've got a picture of me. This is my senior year in high school from Northwest High School, 1978. I am wearing my hair a little different now. I've got a massive part. It's still down the middle. Um, Those glasses are not transition, right? Those, Those are permanent tint from top to... But notice the cool factor. I did get the tint at top that goes light to the bottom, right? Uh, there is absolutely no cotton in that shirt. It didn't exist in 1978. It's all polyester. Uh, and honestly, you know, you know here, here's the sad news. People look at that and they say, uh, I say to my son, Darden, they say, that's, that's you. I hate that for you. That, that's, you know, where, where you're going with classes. Uh, Let's take that down before anybody takes a picture of it and posts it. We'll keep that off the internet. You look, you 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 look, Lord, you look happy. You look fine, whatever. You know, know, most kids can look that way, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm an introvert. I've always been an introvert. 
And that kid had questions that went through his mind. What's it all about? I mean, I just had these, I remember thinking sometimes I'd stare off into space and just go, what's out there? Is there a God? And now for me, I didn't, I never asked anyone to help me with those questions. I never let anybody know what was going on inside. Well, during my senior year in high school, my brother was a freshman at Middle Tennessee State University, and through a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, they call it Crew now, he became a Christian. And he's always been like a hero of mine, and so I watched with great interest as I went, he's changed, but also watched with one arm out because, you know, that's him, I want to live my own life, you know. Well, at some period during my senior year in high school, I'm sitting in my bedroom, 105 Stone Mountain Road in Clarksville, Tennessee. And I pull out this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. It's just a little pamphlet that Campus Crusade had developed to explain the gospel. And I sat in my room. No one's talking to me. I had read this before. People had read it to me. I didn't get it, whatever. But on this, I don't even know the day, but sometime in my senior year, I'm in that room and I read these four principles. The first one says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then it outlines these passages in scripture that God, you know, Jesus, I came to, might have life and life out abundantly. You're made for relationship with God. The second law said, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All have sinned and are separated from God. We've all done wrong. We've all missed the mark of perfection. I read the third law or principle and it says, But God so loved me that he sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, to pay the penalty that my sin deserved. And then that fourth principle. It said it's not enough to know all of that. It's not enough to know all that's true. No, every individual must believe that it's true for them. In other words, every person must, in John's words, must receive, must trust that Jesus died on that cross for me, was buried and raised again. You guys, I have no explanation for this, but the grace of God In that moment, why then? Why then, Lord? Why me? I believed. I'm just telling you, I believed. And my life was changed forever. Now, now watch, I didn't grow up in church or anything, so don't think that I walked out of that bedroom and never sinned, never blew it, never messed up, none of that. Don't don't, don't say that, but I was born again. It, It would take some time and years of growth for me to come to understand what happened. What happened that God just saved me? Now, let me tell you something that was utterly profound for me in time was to understand what God didn't just save you so you could be with him in heaven forever. The gospel is that he saved you that you can live your life right now for the two things that matter most in life and last forever, the word of God and the souls of men. I'm telling you, it came later for me, but it dawned on me, the gospel's not just my passport to heaven. The gospel's my blueprint for life. Here's how you live life. Lloyd, that void, that discontent, it's the gospel and living it out. I want to say to any, anyone in the room, in particular, let me say to, you're 18 to 25, you know, in those days... You live for anything other than Christ at the center, I guarantee you, it will not satisfy your heart 
and your soul. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Now, I share that because the death and resurrection of Jesus does nothing until it transforms the individual. And we're going to see three ladies who take a walk, and they are transformed forever. If you have your Bibles, let's go now to their story, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. I've shared you my story. We're going to look very briefly at their story, and guess where we're going to end? On your story. What does it mean for you? Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark ends his gospel at verse 8. We're convinced the original manuscripts end there. We'll take these eight verses. I'll make just a few comments, and I'm going to make two observations. Let's follow this Easter morning story. Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. That's Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Stop there for a moment. Look up here. There's a circular stone, picture of circular stone as tall as me, a thousand pounds, that would be rolled in front of these tombs. When you say tomb, don't think grave in the ground. In Israel, it's a tomb, it's a, it's a hole in the wall. It's a, it's a cave. So they'd roll this stone over the opening. Picture a little groove that dipped down right in front of the opening such that a thousand pound stone could with relative ease be pushed into the, to the, to the dip. Boom, it lands there. But I'm gonna tell you something, it'll take way more than an easy push to move the stone out of the groove to open the tomb. Why are they walking with their heads down? Because they have no hope. And they look up and they see, miraculously, as we even see in the other gospel accounts, the stone has been moved. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Let me stop there and say, this is an angel. This is not a person, this is an angel. Why do we know it's an angel? Well, this is, the words that he says are consistent with what angels say, what, what he's got, a white robe that he has on, their response to to this young man, this angel, is consistent with what happens when people run into angels or what happens when God shows up somewhere. They're, They're amazed. The Greek word carries two ideas simultaneously, a positive one, this is wonderful, and a negative one, this is terrifying. And so what are they? They're amazed. It's those two things going on in them at the same time goes on to say, he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And thus ends Mark's gospel account. Let me make two observations about this. And let me start with just a little bit of a faith lesson. Can we all agree 
that when these ladies were walking toward that tomb, they had no faith. Now, now, why I say that, or they, had, they, they were in unbelief. Were, when they were going to that tomb, were they going expecting the risen Lord? We can all agree, right? No. Why do we know that? Because they bought spices. Why did they buy spices? Because they want to cover the stench of the dead body of Jesus. They were walking uh, in unbelief. And I don't want us to miss this little faith lesson, if I can offer you, offer you this. Think about these ladies. These are the ones, these, these are those who had been with Jesus the most. Touched him, smelled his breath, looked in his eyes, watched and saw the miracles firsthand. You know, nobody has to tell me what I saw. I know what I saw. They saw the miracles, signs, wonders, all of that. And yet all of that seems to have not engendered much faith for the moment they need it most. Now, why do I say this? Because oftentimes we can think when we're in that spot, man, if Jesus would just show up. I'm telling you, if Jesus would just sit here and tell me it's going to be, if Jesus could speak. No, it would not engender faith. It didn't for them. Well, what, what engenders faith? Belief. We're going to get to that in just a moment. The angel's very specific in his words. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. In other words, you're looking for the right person, the one who died, crucified, and you're in the right place. You're not at the wrong tomb. You're at the right tomb, and there's the place where they laid him. It's important in this way. Mark is giving us names and addresses, you see, evidence of this historic fact. Go check it out with these three ladies. I just gave you their names. They were in the right place looking for the right person, you see. And then the angel states the fact that all of Christianity hangs upon. He has risen. Literally, he is risen. It's one Greek word that makes that sentence. It's a divine passive, and it means this. Not that Jesus pulled himself up and raised himself. No, as the apostles will say later, God the Father raised God the Son from that grave. Verses 7 to 8, the women are instructed, go tell disciples, and then go to Galilee where they will see him. And then the story ends with three women trembling, terrified, and silently running from an empty tomb. Let me make these two observations. The first is this, our failures can never outrun his faithfulness. I want you to sit with that. Our failures can never outrun his faithfulness. It's seen at least three ways, right? Even the story as I just read it. Let's take the women. They come with spices to anoint a dead body because they don't come with the confidence that Jesus is going to keep his word, that he's going to rise again. And so we can say it this way. They fail to believe and they act in that unbelief. Now let me say this though about these ladies. In a day... When a woman's testimony was not accepted in the court of law, God entrusts the message of the empty tomb to three women. An absolute affirmation, an encouragement, listen, to every woman in the work of the kingdom and your value in the eyes of God. But we, we must say in this moment, they, they fail and they act in unbelief. How about the men? 
And you say, what men? Exactly. <laughs> Do you ever think about this? Where are they? They're back there. Fearful. We can say, I think, pretty clearly, they fail to believe and they act in unbelief. And then Mark includes this one phrase, and Peter. It, it's, it's interesting. Peter's failure is recorded in all four gospel accounts. You know, sometimes you do something wrong and you hope, I hope it doesn't get in everything, but it got in all four. <laughs> it's like Peter's failure went viral pre-internet, right? We all know it. He said, God, he just totally blew it. But here, of course, Mark records that Jesus includes Peter's name. What we can say about Peter in this moment is that he failed to believe and he acted in unbelief. Here's where I'm going with this. What's the Savior's response to those who ought to do better? What's Jesus' posture towards those who've been with him and know better? What's Jesus' posture towards those who fail him? It's in the angel's words. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Can I paraphrase that? Let me tell you Jesus' posture towards everyone who fails him. It's going to be okay. I want you. I'll never not want you. I'm ahead of you wherever you're going. I want you to be with me. You're faithlessness can never outrun my faithfulness for you. That's the Savior's posture towards all, which means all of us who fail him. I want you to do something for me. And I'm telling you, this has been so interesting to me because I don't know if it's sleepiness at eight o'clock, maybe we'll do better here, but the, 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 the uh, volume on this has been quite low. And I, and, and I think maybe it goes deeper than early morning. I'm gonna ask you to say something. This is all I'm going to ask you to do is say your name. That's all you got to do. So I think everybody's going to remember this. Say your name. Um, now, I'm going to read verse 8 or, or verse 7. But instead of Peter, I want you to say your name. So you're just going to enter the story for just a moment. I'm going to say Lloyd when, when, when I read it. So let me read it. And you say your name like you believe it. But go, tell his disciples and... It's way better than eight o'clock. <laughs> but it's hard sometimes to put our name there, isn't it? Our failures can never outrun his faithfulness and he calls you by name. Second point I want to make, you won't see Jesus until you go to Galilee. I'm going to say it again. You won't see Jesus until you go to Galilee. Now that ought to create a little bit of a fog in your mind. What do you mean I won't see him until I go to Galilee? In a historical narrative, which the gospel is, I always remember the author will often use geography, specific places. See, the places matter. Because when we understand the places, we understand, oh, he means that. Oh, well, that's what's significant about that, just by the place it occurs. And he's very clear, isn't he, in this text. Twice he says, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Galilee. It's a region about 60 miles northeast of Jerusalem. We're talking about a three days journey. Why Galilee? Well, we can't be dogmatic, but it seems that Mark is saying because 
Galilee is where it all began. Let me get more specific. Because Galilee is where you first believed. Galilee is Lloyd sitting in his bedroom. I believed. You got to go to belief to see Jesus. Because when you believe and you act on that belief, you see him. Believe again. Act on that belief. He's clearer. Believe. Act on that belief. He's clearer. What am I describing? Biblical faith. Trust and act. There's an underlying spiritual principle I think Jesus is affirming in this. Don't look, turn there, but in Mark 15, 32, Jesus is on the cross. They're, the religious leaders are, are, are mocking Jesus and they say this, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. When we see that, oh, then we'll believe. Jesus, mm-mm. See, Jesus always reverses the order of these things. You want to live? Die. You want to lead? Serve. You want to get? Give. Hey, you want to save your life? Let it go. Do you want to see? Believe. I asked earlier, I said, well, if miracles and signs and wonders and being, seeing Jesus physically doesn't necessarily engender faith, what does? You're not going to like this. This is the truth. You know what engenders faith? Faith. Faith engenders faith. Believe. Act on it. Believe. And act on it. Now, Bill Michael and I always say, it's not like blind faith. Just believe something. No, no, no. Believe in the reasonable evidence, in the historic veracity of these events. Believe that these three women with names, this really happened. Believe the testimony of the inerrant word of God. Believe in the historical facts, you all, of Christ's life, death, and his resurrection. Historically, outside of the Bible. Believe. And then you see. Well, we've heard my story. Uh, we now know their story. The question remains, what about your story this Easter Sunday? Well, if you're sitting in this room or you're watching and, you, and you've not placed your faith in Christ, that's, that's how the story becomes personal, you see. And for you, that making it personal is to turn from your own way, to turn from, I'm, I'm going to live my life this way, to turn to, to God and say, I'm going to live for you and trust that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried and raised again, and he did it for you, believing that. And how do you, well, Lord, how do you believe? You believe it. You can pray it. You can articulate it in prayer, but it's your belief. And that's how you make that personal today. And you can today. The most important thing around that, if you believe that today, believe it in your heart, believe it in your soul, you believe it, tell somebody, I believe. I'm going to tell you, I needed that when I believed it as an 18-year-old. I needed someone to help me understand what just happened. 
But for those of us who've trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, how do we make this personal? Well, I'm going to stick with the text here and and say uh, the command of the angel was go tell. And I want to say this, that remains the command of God to everyone in this room who believes Jesus Christ died and rose again on their behalf. Go and tell. This is, quite frankly, you guys, the mission of the church. It's, it's the mission in three, it's, you know, go and, t- it's the mission in three words. Why are we here today? What do we do? We, we gather to remind each other, this is true. Jesus is alive. And then we scatter out these doors. That's the church. Gather, go. We get together, encouraging one another, and then we go out of here to where we live, work, and play and tell people he's alive. Not just on Easter morning. You know, we, we, we tell. I'm going to invite the band to come back out, and they're going to help us with our so what. And we always say so what at fellowship. It's just, well, what do we do with that? What do, how do we apply it? What does it mean to live this truth? They're going to help us reinforce this belief. Because I'm going to ask this question. How do we reinforce the conviction? How does the conviction deepen in us that Jesus is alive? So we walk out of here not like, oh, I need to go tell someone about Jesus. No, we don't. That's not the Christian life. How do we deepen the conviction such that we walk out of here with a glad delight? I get to tell someone Jesus is alive. Well, we get, a, we get a little hint of how that deepens in our souls from the writer of Hebrews. He said this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another with love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's one of the ways we deepen those convictions? We gather. We get together like this, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Paul would write to the church in Ephesus. And that letter is really a how-to-do church manual. And one of the specifics he gives on, boy, when the church is gathered, how do you do church? He adds and says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. How about that? So talking about it is good. Teaching it is necessary. But I don't know how to explain this other than God, in his mysterious way, says, sing it that there's something in the notes and the music in our voices together that deepens the conviction of this truth. And so I'm going to invite you to lift your voice, to sing the gospel and to literally sing the story as we've been walking in it this last week. The accounts, even as they are recorded in the scripture. The account of that walk that changed the world forever. The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was dead. The savior of the world was fallen, his body on the cross. 
His blood poured out for us the weight of every curse upon him. One final breath he gave as heaven looked away. The son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave. The war on death was waged. The power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. Forever he is glorified. Forever he is lifted high. Forever he is risen. He is alive. He is alive.